Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No now, I hate to tell you, Puerto Rico, but you've thrown our budget a little out of whack. The president is isolated, impotent, and has an overblown sense of grievance. His temperament gets in the way of the governing, and that's the problem. Ask yourself if those pictures tell you that we have a president that gives a damn about people who are suffering. He feels he needs to be getting credit for things he shouldn't be getting credit for because he has very few accomplishments. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who's annoyed at having to spend federal money to help Puerto Rico, which he says isn't even a real catastrophe. Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. I get a lot of good ideas for this show from Trumpcast listeners, and one of them is David Lurie, an old friend of mine from high school. David wrote to me over the weekend to underscore an important point about the way Trump's malevolence trickles down to the people underneath him. An example of this is the way Brock Long, the administrator of FEMA, has been acting like a mini-Trump, echoing the president's bogus criticisms about Yulin Cruz, the mayor of San Juan. First, Trump said Cruz was a poor leader, and the Puerto Ricans wanted everything to be done for them. Then Long echoed his boss's claims by saying Cruz was grandstanding instead of being at the command center where the real work was being done. Then Long went on Fox News and attacked Mayor Cruz for spouting off. By spouting off, my friend David notes, Long means shaming the U.S. government into doing its job. We've seen this same kind of thing, not just from the professional Trump flacks like Sean Spicer and Sarah Huckabee Sanders, but from the cabinet officers and people running federal agencies. They know it's a firing offense in this administration to challenge anything the president says. But a lot of them, like Long, don't stop at no comment. They start acting like baby Trumps, though that phrase is redundant. It's trickle-down authoritarianism, trickle-down bigotry, and trickle-down lying. In a moment, I'll speak to someone who's been thinking about how to fight against the normalization of viciousness and deceit in government. He's the writer and democracy activist Yasha Monk. I'll be back with him right after we do the tweets. Being nice to Rocket Man hasn't worked in 25 years. Why would it work now? Clinton failed, Bush failed, and Obama failed. I won't fail. I told Rex Tillerson, our wonderful Secretary of State, that he is wasting his time trying to negotiate with little Rocket Man. Save your energy, Rex will do what has to be done. In analyzing the Alabama primary race, fake news always fails to mention that the candidate I endorsed went up many points after the endorsement. Outside of the fake news or politically motivated ingrates, people are now starting to recognize the amazing work. That has been done by FEMA and our great military. 
Results of recovery effort will speak much louder than complaints by San Juan Mayor, doing everything we can to help great people of PR. The fake news networks are working overtime in Puerto Rico, doing their best to take the spirit away from our soldiers and first responders. Shame. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'd like to welcome back to the show Yasha Monk. He is the author of The Slate Column and the host of the podcast The Good Fight, which is about the fate of democracy. And he's also been working on a book. If I've got it right, the title is The People Versus Democracy, why Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. I think it's coming out early next year. Is that right, Yasha? It is, and you can already head to Amazon and pre-order it. Excellent. Well, that's right up our alley, and I, I'm sure we'll have you back to talk about it once it's out. Wonderful. Um, so I won't make you talk about that too much today, but I have got you on the way to a debate. Tonight you're participating in an Intelligence Squared debate, and I'm sure podcast listeners know you can listen to those debates on their very good podcast. And tonight the debate is about... Western democracy threatening suicide. And you're on the side with the French intellectual Bernard-Henri Lévy arguing that Western democracy is threatening suicide. Suicide. Suicide is a pretty, it's a pretty interesting term there. Yeah, it is. Um, I was trying to make sense of that motion when I was asked to do the debate. And, and, and I think there's sort of two elements to it, right? The first is, if we are to believe that democracy is threatening suicide, we have to think that people are actually sort of fed up with democracy, but have had enough of it, right? And then the second element is that the actions they're taking as a result are actually a real mortal danger to democracy. Are you going to make the argument tonight that a vote for Trump is not just a vote for change within the system, which can be changed back in another election, but actually to change the democratic system or in some ways to compromise the system in which leaders are ultimately chosen democratically. So I would distinguish between the intention behind the vote and its effect, Mm. right? When you look at Poland, where an authoritarian populist government took over two years ago, they actually were very shrewd and ran on a relatively moderate platform. One of the big campaign promises was they have state-run healthcare and they had introduced a small fee for a doctor's visit, a copay. And they said, we're going to abolish the copay, right? But they also came from this movement, which was recognizably populist and, and, and which did attack basic norms of democracy in certain ways. And once they got into power, they essentially dismantled independent institutions, made the constitutional court a complete handmaiden of the populist government occupied the state media, occupied independent institutions. So the people who voted for that government didn't necessarily want to change the political system. They didn't say, today I'm casting a vote to end global democracy. But that may, in effect, have been what they did in Poland. I think that's true of Trump as well. There's a lot of people who voted for Trump for all kinds of reasons, because 
They had irrational fears about Hillary Clinton because they've always voted Republican. All kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with wanting to end global democracy. But the effect of voting for Donald Trump, certainly if you do it over and over, candidates like him, is going to be to erode our democratic institutions. So you came on this program, I think, quite soon after the election. And I think it was among the more alarmist conversations we've had just in terms of how serious the threat was and the real possibility that we could be looking at something more fundamental of the kind you're talking about. We're now nine months in. How does it look compared to to your worst fears and also against what was maybe a a realistic scenario that you had in mind? Is it better or worse than than you hoped or feared? So I think in some ways it's better and in other ways it's worse. Um, One of the things, frankly, that's made it better is the just sheer incompetence of Donald Trump. You know, he has not been able to focus on a consistent goal. He hasn't taken all of his opportunities to capture state institutions in the kind of way that a consistent authoritarian populist would have done. And as a result, he hasn't accomplished very much. If he has a master plan, for example, for subverting the 2020 election, something of which I think by temperament he would be capable of, he certainly, I don't think, thinks it would be sort of uh, grossly impermissible to subvert the 2020 elections. But he hasn't taken any, it's difficult to do that in the States, and he hasn't taken any very consistent steps towards it. So in that sense, I'm a little reassured. I don't see him being able to erode the foundations of democracy because he's not a very effective operator. Now, on the other hand, you know, nine months ago, if somebody would have said, look, we're going to get an email in which Donald Trump's son says, I'm loving it about overt state collusion with Russia. And slowly it turns out that all of the closest circle of Donald Trump was part of that meeting. If we had thought that Donald Trump would stand up and say, there's fine people on both sides at a neo-Nazi rally or about a neo-Nazi rally, If we had known the way that he's acted and failed to act in the case of Puerto Rico, I think we would have said, you know what, that would be enough to make the GOP break. Even after the election, we would have said, you know what, I mean, if he did all of those things, really most senators would speak out against him. Most congressmen would speak out against him. And that hasn't happened. So I think um, I'm less worried that the person who ends liberal democracy in the United States will be known in history books as Donald Trump. But I'm just as worried as I was nine months ago that the kind of anger in our politics is going to keep propelling extreme candidates like Trump. And over the next 10, 20, 30 years, especially if a more effective operator ends up in the White House, that may actually subvert our political system. Yeah, Yasha, I mean, one of the things to watch very closely, I think, is the balance in the Republican Party and in the government between emulation and challenge. That is, when when Trump does something that violates norms, that's anti-democratic, that's authoritarian, do the people around him back him up and behave like him, or do they challenge him in some way? And during Charlottesville, which is in many ways the most outrageous thing he he said, supporting supporting the um, neo Nazis who demonstrated there, we saw both. We saw people like Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Department, who just took his side categorically. And in part, I think they did that because they saw the way he lashed out against people like Gary Cohn, who let it be known, at least, that they were unhappy with him. How do you see that barometer going? Well, I think so. The real question is, you know, I think we can survive Donald Trump. I don't know if we can survive a Republican Party that is 
consistently Trumpist. And to me, the special election in Alabama was a really interesting moment there. Because you essentially had I mean, two pretty extreme candidates, but one who was a little more like a traditional Republican uh, politician in Alabama, if there is such a thing, Lufus Strange. By and, Alabama standards. Yeah. By Alabama standards. And, and, and then you had his competitor, Ray Moore, who was a Trumpist candidate, not endorsed by Trump, basically for sort of, again, I think Trump was making a mistake, actually. If he was a consistent or time populist, he would have backed Ray Moore. He didn't for and he, complicated And he sort reasons. of said he got snookered into that by Mitch McConnell, right? I mean, he sort exactly. of gave one to the establishment and immediately regretted it even before the vote. But the point is that even for Trump actually campaigned for the more moderate candidate, the more Trumpist candidate won. And to me, that was one of the first indications that Trump is symptom rather than cause. Mm. That really the energy of the Republican Party is going in an uber-Trumpist direction. And that even if Trump somehow turned into, you know, uh, became part of a swamp and became a complete establishment guy, that wouldn't go away. It's not about Trump. It's about the energy behind Trump. Now, Alabama is not the rest of the country and the GOP in Michigan looks very different from the GOP in Alabama. But if that is an auger for what's going to happen to the Republican Party, then I think we're in deep trouble. Yeah. And of course, there's a Michigan version of it and a Wyoming version of it. And, you know, the Michigan version of it isn't about posting the Ten Commandments over the door and rejecting evolution. It may be more about immigrants taking taking jobs. It has different it emphasizes different things, but it is the phenomenon of Trumpism. It's populism, it's nationalism, it's it's authoritar- authoritarian by instinct. And one of the things that it has in common is that really more than anything else, it's about hating the other guy. Right. Right. It's about negative partisanship. It's about saying, you know what, perhaps our guy isn't perfect and so on. But as long as I can see him hating Democrats, hating liberals, hating the coastal elites, I'm going to vote for that guy. And so I think that logic of only I, the populist, stand for the true people and everybody else is a traitor. And by the way, all of those people on the coast and so on, they really all are traitors. That is a dangerous logic. And it's a very powerful one at the moment in our politics. Hate provokes hate. I mean, after Charlottesville, I certainly felt the kind of emotion about politics that I don't ordinarily feel. I don't usually feel hatred for anybody on the other side. How do you, you get into a battle of who started it, but I mean, how do you resist the impulse to fall into a hatred generated by a right-wing authoritarian politics? I think that's, that's a really, really important point. Um, I think we're in danger of that, and it pains me to say that. Now, look, there's no equivalence between the white supremacists and the neo-Nazis marching in Charlottesville and the people who oppose them, right? Absolutely not. It's outrageous that Donald Trump said that. That doesn't mean that we have to start to excuse anybody, no matter what they do, no matter what their ideals, as long as they claim to be on our side. And when I see people starting to glorify a movement like Antifa, which explicitly says each of our local groups gets to decide who's a fascist. And if we've decided that somebody's a fascist, then we should go and use violence against them. That is really dangerous. It's not just counterproductive strategically, it's normatively wrong. If there's something that we should stand for in a liberal democracy is that we're trying to preserve as best we can a society in which the answer to problems is not violence. Now, that's difficult when there is violence on the other side. But when I see the degree to which a lot of people are now 
becoming tribal in embracing anybody on our side and in starting to excuse violence, even in situations when it's really not necessary, when you can't say they're just defending themselves you know, against the neo-Nazis in this particular situation. I'm worried. Yeah, but, I mean, because even the idea of uh, violence and self-defense becomes a very slippery slope because when you are prepared for violence, you may encourage violence and, and defensive violence slides very easily into preemptive violence and you end up having an argument about who's responsible for violence as opposed to the stark distinction between people who accept the use of violence in politics and people who absolutely reject it. Exactly. Um, it makes me think of Thomas Hobbes, actually. Yeah. Right. So he talks about the state of nature. And people often read uh, Hobbes' Leviathan as claiming that people are evil and that we need sort of, you know, a strong state and a strong government because human nature is bad. But that's not actually what he says. He doesn't say humans are bad. He just says before government, before the norms of a political society that puts an end to violence, there's a really powerful logic at play, which is that I see the guy over there and I don't really have a defense against him. And so, you know, perhaps I should get a stick to defend myself because what if he came to kill me at night? But that guy sees me getting a stick and says, well, why is Asha getting a stick? Does he want to come and beat me up? So he gets a bigger stick and, and you get into this very dangerous logic. And the answer to that is politics. The answer to that is laws. The answer to that is a system in which you punish somebody effectively and harshly who perpetrates political violence so that you don't have to be afraid of them even in a difficult situation in which the justice system is hardly perfect in this country and so on, I think there's no alternative to it. If we end up going back to the logic of a state of nature, life is going to become nasty, brutish, and short, as, as Hobbes said. And more importantly, this is a really dumb, simple point. We're going to lose. Look at who has the guns in the United States. Look at where the army would fall if it really came down to that kind of large-scale civic conflict. The idea that we should mobilize with violence it's not just normatively abhorrent, it's also strategically absurd. Well, given that you're going to be arguing tonight that Western democracy is threatening suicide, that that's all the more alarming. But I want to ask you to talk a little more about what people can do about it. You, you, you wrote in your column a few weeks ago about a very interesting movement for people in government to join in this uh, Uphold the Oath yep. initiative where they essentially reaffirm their oaths of office, right, the way you would reaffirm your marriage vows or any other oath you'd taken. And I thought, that well, that's a very that's a very nice idea, but it also occurred to me that the people doing the, who are willing to do this are not going to be the people we're worried about. You know, it's not going to be this character, Long, Brock Long, who's the head of FEMA, who sounds just like Trump when he talks about Puerto Rico. Well, that's right, but I mean, I think if Trump gives increasingly outrageous and illegal orders, the willingness of the 2 million American civil servants, federal civil servants, to say, you know what, I sworn an oath to the Constitution and no. to the duties of my office, not to Donald Trump. And if I get an order that's illegal, I'm going to refuse to carry it out. That is really, really important. And so Uphold the Oath, they have a wonderful website, upholdtheoath.org, does this, this great thing where everybody can upload a video of them just reaffirming in a non-political, non-partisan context their determination to live up to the oath of office. And there's an implicit context here, but it's not explicit. And so I think that does a little contribution. But look, I think there's a few different things, right? There's the short term and the long term. In the short term, we got to win. I mean, in countries like Poland and Hungary and Venezuela and so on, you see that at the first election after populists has taken power, you usually, as the opposition, have a decent chance of ousting them from office if you're united 
if you give people real hope, if you run a smart campaign, if you have lots of people working for you in the streets, knocking on doors and all of those things. Once Vio Forte and Poplis have been in power for eight or 12 years, it gets tough. It gets more and more difficult. The playing field becomes less and less even. It favors the incumbents more and more. So we got to win in 2018. We got to win in 2020. If you want to see a restoration of norms, what you're kind of hoping at the moment is that Trump does something so outrageous or continues to do things that are outrageous enough that they produce a backlash at the polls, you know, that he does something that's going to cost them Congress in 2018 and, of course, the presidency if he makes it that long in 2020. Right now, we have this issue focused around this tax cut they're proposing. And I find myself a little torn on this because it seems to me it's tremendously bad politics to give a, a enormous unaffordable tax cut to the wealthy and not give one to the working people who voted for Trump. And, you know, I think there was a little bit of the same dynamic around the repeal of the ACA. You want the right outcome. That would be no tax cut or save the ACA. But you also want yeah. Trump to do stupid something stupid enough that's going to that's gonna cost him an election. You know, I think in the end, I'm not sure that it's going to be a policy that does him in. It may be a particular political situation. And so I actually think that right now we need to be focusing on Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico. There's parallels there in an obvious way to George W. Bush um, and Hurricane Katrina. Um, And I think we do a disservice, by the way, to Americans if we think, you know, most average voters didn't care about Katrina because it mostly affected black people. And most people, average voters today, won't care about Puerto Rico because it's off the mainland and it's mostly brown people. I don't think that's true. I think that Americans care about the government's ability to protect its own people and to come to their assistance. And I think that if we keep shining a bright light on the horrible situation that's playing out there and the deep indifference towards it from the administration, that really undercuts Trump's ability to say that he's a good guy. It undercuts his ability to say that he's a competent guy. And then it cuts his ability that he's a doer who, you know, as a CEO and so on, knows how to get things done. He doesn't know how to get things done. He's made one blunder after the next in this situation and it's costing lives. And I think if we keep shining our spotlight on that, that is the kind of thing that can get stuck. People can start to say, you know what, Trump, he's a big talker, but look at things like Puerto Rico actually doesn't know what he's doing. And that I think could do him in even more than the sort of abstract policy debate where average people might say, I don't know, there's something fishy about this tax cut. You know, it seems to go mostly to the rich, but they say it's going to help us all. And the economy is going pretty well. So, you know, I think the ability of voters to hold politicians accountable for the effects of economic policy, it's so difficult that I would rather hope, not obviously for worse things to happen in Puerto Rico, but for us as journalists and writers and so on to keep shining a light on the failings that have already happened in Puerto Rico rather than hoping that, you know, the ACA repeal or the tax cut is somehow going to do Trump in. I might argue the opposite, Yasha. I have more confidence that voters will ultimately recognize their economic self-interest, that working class voters losing health care or, you know, facing no break on taxes or maybe even an increase on taxes are going to likely to react. I'm not sure that this rump of Trump supporters, whatever it is, 30 to 40 percent of the electorate, is going to react to uh, with with a sufficient empathy towards these people in a faraway place that is, of course, part of the United States. But 
I'm not sure they knew Puerto Ricans were citizens. I'm not sure Trump knew Puerto Ricans were U.S. citizens <laughs> until fairly, fairly recently. And remember, they are disenfranchised citizens. They don't. They don't have. A, they they vote locally, but they aren't represented in Congress. They don't vote for the presidency. So, so I see that, but I, I don't agree for two reasons. I mean, the first is three reasons. A, it's not about the 30% of hardcore supporters who are going to vote for him no matter what. It's about making sure that the people in the middle who don't like him very much but might quite effectively be made to hate whatever Democratic candidate we're going to see in 2020 don't end up sliding back to Trump as the lesser of two evils as we did in 2016. And, you know, the number, when you look at questions about American identity and people's opinion on race, the number of people who are hardcore white supremacists, the number of people who actually just disdain Americans of other ethnicities is not that small. It's not that high. And when you look at Katrina, you could have said, well, uh, you know, swing voters in Iowa are really going to care about poor black people in New Orleans. Well, they did. Not in the most straightforward way, perhaps, but they saw that as a great failing of a Bush administration and it really turned public opinion against him. So that's the first thing. The other thing is about the relationship of economic policy to how people react. And I agree that people care about their economic situation more than anything else. But they have a much easier shortcut for that. They're simply saying, well, am I doing fine economically? Does the economy seem to be going well? And they tend to credit whatever president is in power if it's going well. You're crediting the person in power with the status quo, whatever it is. And, yeah. and it's a referendum on the status quo. Yeah. The um, Since I've got you here, I just want to ask you a little bit about a few other international developments. You look at all this in a global context. Um, I want to talk briefly about Catalonia and Spain and, and also about the German election. So talk about, again, Western democracy threatening suicide. In Spain, a modern democracy, you have fighting in the streets between Spanish police and, and people who are demonstrating over this referendum. And you'll have to explain this to me, but the referendum seemed not very legitimate. The effort to suppress it seemed not very legitimate. And there's a result which I don't even know how to judge. And I honestly don't know what to think about it. I really struggled to, to make sense of what to think about because it's such a strange situation. You have a country that's a stable democracy. You have a part of a country that's very affluent, beautiful, by the way, as well. And basically, through the sheer stubbornness of both sides of a political divide, we're ending up in a very brutal conflict that actually threatens to break out into a sort of low-scale type of civil war. You had nearly a thousand people injured in the streets of Barcelona last Sunday. Insane. And how did it happen? Well, it happened because there's a local Catalonian government Though it's elected with a minority of a vote that might sound familiar to listeners of a Trump cast. It's a weird cobbled together coalition between a sort of anti-capitalist far left and a actually pretty sort of economically conservative right-wing party who are only united in um, their desire for an independent Catalonia. And they pushed legislation to have this referendum through parliament in you know a very unorthodox way. They voted on it when the opposition wasn't there and all of those kinds of things. So they are not really organizing a referendum. They are doing a sham referendum. And we know that the outcome is going to be that they will likely declare independence, no matter how many people were going to turn up to vote, no matter how they would have voted. So that is not a very legitimate way of doing things. Now, at the same time, you have a central Spanish government that is completely unwilling to recognize the desire for independence in this part of a country um, to throw it a real bone. And that instead of saying as uh, it should have done, look, this vote is a fraud. 
it's illegitimate, we will not recognize its results, we call on people in Catalonia to stay away from the polls, but let them have a sham vote, right? Let, let it proceed, we're just telling you we don't recognize it as informing our politics afterwards. Instead, they decided that we have to stop it from happening. And so Rajoy, the prime minister of Spain, sent out the riot police to storm polling stations and confiscate the votes that had been cast. And in doing so, they wound up in clashes with people trying to protect those locations. And so that's how you ended up with over 700 severely injured people. Now, to me, what's striking about it is the lack of respect for democracy on both sides, the lack of respect for procedural requirements of democracy on the side of a Catalonian government that's organizing a sham referendum, and the lack of a recognition that if a part of your country really has a strong independence movement um, and has a different language and different history, you need to actually accommodate them in some real way. And you can't go and brutally break up even a sham referendum um, in the kind of way the Spanish government did. So, so I'm struck here by how both sides of a political divide are violating some of the norms you need to ensure that you don't end up with 700 injured in the streets of Madrid. Oh, of Barcelona, sorry. They might well, Catalonia might well pass a totally legitimate referendum, but what gives them the right to succeed? I mean, Spain is a unitary country, has been for a long time. We have no constitution here that would permit, say, California to form an independent country. What creates that right to secede and where should we recognize it? Yeah, that's a really complicated question, right? And I mean, essentially, uh, you have to have a very deep history as uh, sort of a separate people and you have to have some claim on the international right, at least, that you're really being maltreated. Now, I, I don't think Catalonia had a reasonable claim to being maltreated over the last three or four decades. And sort of the opposite, of they're annoyed at subsidizing the less wealthy parts of the country, right? Yes, yeah. So um, so they're actually very affluent. Um, one of the reasons why they want to succeed is that it might save them some money. Yeah. Um, uh, so I agree that we don't have a great right in international law to secede. But that cuts both ways, right? One of the reasons why we don't have a great right is that we're part of this democratic society that treats them reasonably well. But I think that also ups the ante for the democratic state of Spain to be reasonable and responsible and responsive to the desires of the people in that part of the country. Now, opinion polls show that a large majority of people in Catalonia want a vote on independence. And they also show that a clear majority of Catalonians would vote against independence, at least they would have done before the events of this past Sunday. Great Britain was in a similar situation, and they allowed Scotland to proceed with a vote. I don't think Scotland had a right under international law to that vote, but the British government said, you know what, we're not going to force you to stay a part of a country, we'll make an argument for why you should. And that was the right course of action, it was courageous, and they won. And I think, thankfully, from my perspective, Scotland is still a part of the United Kingdom. The Spanish government, in my mind, should have done the same. Instead, they've vastly inflamed this movement, and it's much more likely today than it was a week ago that Catalonia will end up independent. Since you're here, I have to ask you about the German election. It was it was very alarming and upsetting to people that the alternative for Germany, the, the right-wing populist party, when we talk about a right-wing populist party in Germany that, that has references that are unmistakable, got 13% of the vote, I believe, which was considered very high by, by historical standards. What did that mean? I mean, on the one hand, that's awful. On the other hand, 13% doesn't seem to get you anywhere, and it's nowhere near get, get, getting them anywhere near power. It doesn't get them near power, but it is a fundamental break with Germany's post-war history. Except in the very early years of the Federal Republic, in the first post-war years, you've never had a far-right populist party or 
far-right party at all in the German Bundestag. Um, you have a 5% threshold, and uh, the most that the far-right party got is 6% in, I think, 1953. And since then, they've always been below 5%. Now they're over twice as many votes. And this is a party, by the way, that is much more radical than somebody like Donald Trump in the views of immigration and minorities. It's a party that says explicitly there's no place for Islam in Germany. It's a party that says, some of whose members have said that they desire a 180-degree turn in our understanding of German history and the Second World War. It's a party whose leader said just a few weeks ago, using a Nazi term in the Sorgen, that if they won the election, they would dispose of social democratic politician of Turkish roots in Anatolia. It's a very extreme party. And so the fact that they have such a high share of the vote in a country that has uh, the history that it does is deeply disturbing to me. Now, practically, it's true that they can't form a government, but they can do two things. The first is to dominate the public debate, as indeed they have over the last years, and thereby pull the whole political discourse to the right. And it's already far to the right to the United States on issues of immigration and national identity. And the second thing they can do is to render the political system more and more dysfunctional. Germany has a system of proportional representation. So basically, if you get about 10% of the vote, you have about 10% of the people in the Bundestag. It used to be that at most elections, the big party of the center-left and the small party of the center-left together could form a majority. And then they would become unpopular, the government would run out of steam, some people would shift to the moderate right, and then the big party of the center-right and the small party of the center-right could form a government instead. And that was really good because it meant that you had alteration in government. It meant that there was a way of throwing the bums out without going to the extremes. Now you have a big far-left populist party that isn't in coalition with anybody else ever, and a big far-right populist party that isn't in coalition with anybody else ever. And the result of that is that voters don't know who they're going to get. There's always going to be some weird combination of the establishment parties. And that means that the first populist claim, which is that all the establishment is the same anyway, starts to be true, even if it wasn't. And the second effect of it is that it's impossible to throw the government out. If you say, you know what, Angela Merkel, by the time of the next election, if she stands again, is going to have been in power for 16 years. I want to get rid of Angela Merkel. The only sure way to do that is to vote for the extremes. And so I think we're likely to keep rising in the polls. I've been speaking to Yasha Monk. He's the author of The Good Fight column in Slate and the host of The Good Fight podcast. Yasha, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much, Jacob. That's it for today's show. And hey, have you been listening to the Trumpcast Book Club? It's really been going well. And our next book is The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. You may have seen the Netflix show, which won all the Emmys. You should read the book, too, and listen to us discuss it in a few weeks. We're also doing another live show. We've been having such a good time doing those. This one is in San Francisco on November 14th at the North Theater. Tickets are available at slate.com slash live. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. John Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Who wants a paper towel? You want a paper towel. You get a paper towel. You get a paper towel. You get a, Everyone gets paper towels. Isn't this great? And it's Viva. It's Viva paper towels. They're the best paper towels because they're Latino. That's what you people like, right? You don't want Scott. That's a white guy. 
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.